Well, will you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word and turning your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. An old preacher once quipped, happy is the person sitting next to someone who can find Habakkuk in the Bible. (laughs) If you don't know how to find it, the simplest way to get there is to turn to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and head left past Malachi, past Zechariah, past Haggai, past Zephaniah, and then you'll be where we want to be. It's the fifth to last book in the Old Testament. And if you want to make it even simpler, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you and you'll find our text this morning on page 785. For the previous almost 18 months, our church had been walking through the gospel according to Luke and because we want to be a people who preach the whole counsel of God, who study the whole counsel of God. We want to then look at the two testaments balancing back and forth between the various genres. And so we move from a very long, the longest in the New Testament, in fact, New Testament narrative to a short Old Testament minor prophet. Just five weeks we'll spend on these three chapters in Habakkuk, Lord willing. And the first part we want to look at today is the first 11 verses of chapter 1. So let me read our text for us and then... I will pray for our time, and we will begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That bitter and hasty nation who march to the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press on proudly. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we bow before you this morning, thankful for your truth, and grateful that every word of your Holy Scripture is inspired and useful for us uh, to train us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to equip us, that we might walk in righteousness. So Lord, we pray this morning as we come to a text that is often forgotten, come to a text that many of us may not know that well, that you would open our eyes to behold its wonderful truth that we may know you in the fullness of who you are. We may see something of your sovereign wisdom as you guide and lead your people. So lead us into truth, we pray. Help us to hear with eagerness for me to preach with courage as your word says I must. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Consider with me the following stories. A family has been praying for some time for God to provide a child. And God finally opens the womb. But not long after the baby is discovered within the mother's body, they realize that the baby has a rare condition, which means the skull will never fully form. So if the baby makes it all the way to term, it will surely die shortly after it comes out in the hospital room. And the family cries, where is God? Or another story. A family comes home from a soccer tournament that was full of great joy and gladness, unity together. It seemed that the summer was going to be full of happiness and joy as the family was going to spend much time together. Yet within an hour, the father is walking out of the house, bags packed, saying he's leaving. He wants a divorce for no discernible reason, quickly setting aside his wife and two children. And the family cries, where is God? Or another story, a pastor who had led a church faithfully for decades, exalting Jesus Christ, particularly keen and earnest in international missions, yet all the while struggling with a deep, dark depression that nobody knew about. But eventually he begins to share the truth with his church. He seeks counseling, help, and support. He wants to be there not only for his church, but for his children, for his growing number of grandchildren. So eventually he goes off on a retreat to try to edify his soul in silence and solitude, but in an hour of darkness, commits suicide, never to come back then alive. His family and his church cry what? Where is God? Or a young mother just had her fifth child. Her husband travels often, sometimes even gone for several weeks in a row. And she's faithful serving her children, schooling them, volunteering everywhere she can within the church. Always faithful to show up on time with her children ready. And yet one time when her, father, or when her husband is, is traveling away, she's, she's admitted to the emergency room. For this strange sickness that's giving rise to these odd symptoms. And so she calls her husband, you need to come home, I'm in the emergency room. It's the last time he ever hears his wife's voice. She immediately falls into a coma. Within 12 hours, her brain is dead. And within 24 hours, her husband is facing the incredible decision. When will I pull my wife off life support? And the family cries, where is God? And I genuinely wish each one of those stories is hypothetical. I just pulled them from the last five years of my ministry. You too probably have an encyclopedia of sadness and suffering from which you can draw stories of difficulty. Stories where you want to question what God is doing in your life, your family member's life. What he is doing in the world. Or maybe you look out on the world and you say, why is evil, injustice, thriving why is the blood of so many Christians spilling out into the streets? God, what are you doing? When are you going to lift up your voice and answer the cries of your people? If you know such a, an emotion, such an experience, you know something about our prophet named Habakkuk. Because here is a book that is essentially a conversation between a prophet and Yahweh. Largely asking the question over and over why? Where are you? Why are you silent? 
Why aren't you doing anything? So if ever you've been through life and wanted to wonder how you can reconcile, how you can deal with the truth of who God is and what He seems to be doing, the truth of who God is and what He seems not to be doing, Habakkuk is a book for you. Now, students, you want to pay attention over these five weeks, and I pray that you will, because few passages, few books as a whole in Scripture so show us how we're supposed to submit to God's sovereign hand, even in the midst of suffering and hardship that so often strikes our life. Because if God gives us all another few decades to live, every one of us surely will come to a point where we want to ask, why? Where are you? Or we'll have friends or family members that will certainly ask us the same questions. And how are we to give them a faith-filled, trusting answer? So what you want to see in our text this morning, which is simply Habakkuk's first prayer and God's first response, you want to see this simple truth. Yet by the end of the book has moved Habakkuk to a place of complaint, to utter trust in God's goodness. And it begins with him fully realizing, fully reckoning with this significant reality. God is sovereign over all nations and does what he pleases for his own purposes. God is sovereign over everything and everyone. So kids, when you hear that word, sovereign, what do you think it means? God is sovereign. Well, it simply just means he controls everything and everyone. And what Habakkuk is soon going to find out is his his sovereignty is often surprising, maybe even shocking in what God plans to do. So I want to walk through our 11 verses just under three simple headings, the first of which is Judah's prophet, for we need to get to know this man just a little bit. You'll see how verse 1 begins. We're told as we open up these pages, we are coming to the oracle. It more literally means the burden. So children, if you walked into a gym maybe later this week and you picked up a 60-pound dumbbell, an 80-pound dumbbell. You're carrying a heavy burden. And the prophetic ministry of all these old covenant prophets are often said to be burdensome in the best way. Nahum uses it of his ministry. So do does Habakkuk, Zechariah, and Malachi. Put in more contemporary terms, they've got something heavy that they need to get off their chest. And it's a word from the Lord. We don't know much about the prophet himself. We're simply told that his name is Habakkuk. It could be something related to agriculture. I think it's more likely related to this Hebrew verb, which means embrace. Because what we're going to see Habakkuk doing throughout these pages is wrestling with God in prayer, getting to a point where he comes to embrace God's sovereign purposes, although he's not there yet in our text today. This is the only time in all the Bible that his name is mentioned outside of another place in chapter 3, verse 1 of this very book. So we know precious little about him as a whole. As best we can tell, based on his prophecy, he's probably going through his prophetic ministry sometime between like 609 and 605 B.C. If you know anything about the history of God's people at that time, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been carted off in 722 B.C. to Assyria. The only people that are left is the southern kingdom of Judah. Habakkuk is thus probably a contemporary of the great prophet Jeremiah. We'll turn there in a second. He's probably living through at first in his early days of his ministry this incredible reform and revival that happened prior to 609 B.C. under this good king named Josiah. 
rediscovering the law, bringing genuine biblical revival uh, to God's people. But in 609 BC, Josiah is killed in a battle with the Egyptian army. So the Egyptian army takes Judah as a vassal state and they install one of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim, as like a puppet president in the land. And we'll see in just a minute the degree to which sin and injustice marks Jehoiakim's ministry. And we're told this is not just an oracle. We're told it's something that the prophet saw. Because Old Testament prophets didn't just say things, they saw things. They didn't just speak truth, they saw truth, often receiving these visions that they were meant to communicate to God's people. So Habakkuk is a sayer, he's a seer. By the end of the book, we also find out he's a songwriter. Because you can read it later on today, chapter 3 is little more than just a psalm. But it has very technical Hebrew musical annotations, which lead many people to think that what we have essentially in this book is a prophet songwriter in the temple going about his ministry given to him by the Lord. And it's striking to me, isn't it, that what we find out in this book is precious little about Habakkuk's biography, but we do find out a lot about his burden, his ministry. It reminds us when God's ministers minister, their story matters less than the word they deliver. The man is much less important than the message. God's word is what matters most as his truth goes forth. So this is Judah's prophet. And what we're going to see is he has an issue with God. In verse 2 through 4, we see then Habakkuk's problem. So look at the first question in verse 2. Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? So the first problem he has is the problem of indifference. And we're going to come back actually to this verse at the end. But for now what you need to see is Habakkuk has already clearly been earnest in his prayer to God for God to fix something going on in Judah. It's not as though he's this prophet that's kind of holding up a phone, if you will, to talk with God and saying, Can you hear me? Can you hear me? It's more, when will you hear me? Will you even ever listen to me as I cry to you for help? You'll see as verse 2 ends, he also says, I cry to you violence, and you will not save. Those of you who pay attention to the political happenings in the Middle East may know that there's a Palestinian fundamentalist group that rules over the Gaza Strip and often terrorizes Israel a group named Hamas. The Hebrew word for violence is Hamas. And what you have is this word violence, which shows up in significant ways in Habakkuk's ministry three times in our text alone. It's as though he's seeing this terror before his eyes, asking God to save his people from all of this injustice, and God seems completely indifferent to all of it. So he has a problem of indifference, but he also has a problem of injustice. For look at verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The idea here is in the phrase of idly look at wrong at the top of verse 3. It could be more uh, literally translated as why do you tolerate wrong? This is Habakkuk's experience. He sees all this problem going on in Judah, and he says, God, why are you tolerating it for so long? So we want to ask the question, well, when he mentions iniquity, destruction, violence, strife, contention, what exactly does he have in mind? Well, if you want to flip over to Jeremiah chapter 22, we begin to get a sense of what Habakkuk is probably dealing with. 
Because in Jeremiah 22, you have this sustained word from God against King Jehoiakim, who's in charge of Judah at the time of Habakkuk's ministry. And listen to what God is upset with Jehoiakim about, just in verses 13 through 17. He says, Woe to him, that's King Jehoiakim, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness, and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing, and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house, and with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar, and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you are a kid because, or king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice? Then it was well with him. So you can pause right there. Kids, what God is upset with King Jehoiakim is about is he's building this great, grand, ostentatious palace for himself on the blood, sweat, and toil of God's people, enslaving them into his own materialistic desires and not even paying them for it. But God goes even further. You look in verse 16 and 17. He judged, this is King Josiah, he judged the cause of the poor and the needy, and then it was well. Is not this to know me? declares the Lord, but you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. The context, it seems like, for this ministry that Habakkuk is seeing is nothing less than sustained injustice, oppression, and corruption coming from the king who is supposed to be God's chosen leader, protecting the honor of Yahweh and the holiness of his people, and all of it isn't happening. And he says, where are you in the midst of this? You'll see in verse 4, not only do the wicked surround the righteous, Habakkuk says the law is paralyzed and perverted. So if you wanted to know the degree to which the leader of God's people at this moment thought so little of God's law. You can go home later today and read this story in Jeremiah 36. God has given Jeremiah his own burdensome ministry to call the nation of Judah to repent of their idolatry, their rampant unrepentance, lest he cart them off to exile. Well, this prophetic ministry eventually gets written on a scroll. Jehoiakim hears about Jeremiah's ministry, is not too excited about what's on that scroll. So on a winter A winter day, it's cold outside. He calls for this scroll to come into the royal court, and we're told that there, heating up that royal room is this fire and this steaming pot. And so what Jehoiakim does is he has one of his servants take this prophetic word from the Lord written down on a scroll by Jeremiah. Read three lines, he says. Once three or four lines are read, he takes out his knife, slices it off, throws it in the fire. Read three or four more. Three or four more are red, takes his knife, slices it off, throws it in the fire until all of God's word is burned up and nothing but ashes that float away in the wind. This is what's facing Habakkuk. Won't you do anything about it? Why are you not listening? Will you not protect your name? is what he is saying. So problems of indifference, problems of injustice. And then what we get now in the remainder of our text, verses 5 through 11, is God's plan. What God plans to do about all of this. If you know the story of The Hobbit, you know it centers on this character named Bilbo Baggins. And you may also know that his 
adventure is rather torturous throughout the book's chapters. So, for example, he and his party one night are trying to escape a cold, wet night, and so they go into a cave on a mountainside in the middle of the night. That, that cave opens up to this den of goblins, and then Bilbo magi- um, makes it possible to escape from the goblins, and then he gets all the way down to the bottom of a mountain and comes across this evil creature that wants to eat him, and he manages to escape from this creature to make it outside of the mountain, only to come across these fierce wolves that want to eat him. And so he manages to escape them by driving himself up into a tree, only for that tree to catch fire, as the fire itself wants to consume him and eat him. And so Tolkien famously titled that chapter, Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire. It went from bad to worse. And in Habakkuk's mind, what he's getting ready to hear about God's plan is out of the frying pan and into the fire. It's only getting worse for Habakkuk because look at what God says in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. Now you want to know that these commands are plurals. So students, what that means is he's saying, all of you look and see. All of you wonder and be astounded. It's even quite striking because it matches the first verbs. It matches verse 3, where Habakkuk has said to God, Why don't you look and see? God's first word, Yahweh's first word to his prophet is, You all look and see. Wonder and be astounded. Why? Look at verse 5 as it ends. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Hey, you want to make sure you pay attention to the tense. He's not saying, I will do a work in your time. I'm about ready to do a work in your day. What is he saying? I am already doing a work in your time. And maybe you know that in your own experience, so often you seem to cry out to God, when are you going to do something about this? Why won't you come and answer my need? And when in reality, he is already at work. He's just doing it in a way that you didn't expect. He's just doing it in a way maybe you didn't desire. What Habakkuk is hearing from Yahweh is, brace yourself. I have a plan. So he's preparing him for the plan. But now in verse 6, he identifies the plan itself. For look at what he says. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. So students, what do you know about the Chaldeans? If you have a different translation, it may say the Babylonians is who God is raising up, which is faithful too, because Chaldeans were part of Babylon. So what do you know about the Babylonians? Now what you need to know about Babylon is across all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, this is the vaunted foe of God's people, beginning, middle, and end of the story, from the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis to the woman of Babylon in the book of Revelation, Babylon always opposes the righteousness and holiness of God's covenant chosen people. And here God is saying, I am raising them up. To do what? Look at verse 6. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So you kind of put it in context of what's getting ready to come. What God is saying, what Yahweh is saying to Habakkuk, I am using the Babylonian Empire, as an axe to cut down the tree that is called Judah. They seize lands that are not their own. They take dwellings that don't belong to them, and they are soon going to take Jerusalem from my people. And we know that happened. Because, of course, what happened in 609 B.C. is Egypt 
essentially comes and takes Judah. But by 605 B.C., not only has Babylon overthrown Assyria, the former world empire, 605 B.C. in the Battle of Carchemish, they've overthrown the Egyptian empire, and Babylon is the ruling, reigning power on the earth. And it will only be 20 years after that date that they have already taken Judah by force, laid siege to Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and walked off with God's people. And God is saying, that's what I'm doing with you, my chosen covenant people. That's the news that you need to brace yourself for. The Babylonians are coming. So it was on September 7th, 1940, that the Blitz began in Britain, uh, that time when the German Air Force made near nightly raids on England and that first evening as people began to hear the hum of aircraft coming across the English Channel. If you were in a village or a city at the time, you would see people running about somewhat hurriedly and even frantically crying out, the Germans are coming, for everyone knew of their brutality, everyone knew of their efficiency. And in the same way, if you were in Judah at this time hearing this news that the Babylonians are coming, you too would have been scared by the efficiency and agility of this army. For look at what we're told in verse 7 through 9. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press on proudly. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. And I wonder, in that last phrase, they're coming like an eagle swift to devour, if Habakkuk didn't begin to understand exactly what was going on with God's plan. Because he surely knew his Old Testament well enough to know that phrase was used in a very famous passage in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 28 in particular. So Deuteronomy 28 is all about the blessings that will come to God's covenant people when they obey the covenant. But it's also full of the curses that are going to come to God's people when they disobey the covenant. And here's what God says in Deuteronomy 28, verse 49. If you disobey my covenant, I will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. They don't understand the language of Babylon. God is sending the Babylonians in fulfillment of his covenant threats to swoop down like an eagle to devour his people. And so what you need to know about God's sovereignty even in this passage is not only is he orchestrating all of human history, nations and governments to bring about his purposes. It goes on to show us throughout this book, but particularly even in this text, his word is true. The promises of blessings that he brings to his people are no less true than the threats and curses he promises to bring when there is disobedience and breaking of the covenant. So if we go on in verse 9 and 10, look at else what we find out about the Babylonians. They all come for violence, their faces forward. They gather captives like the sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. So what you need to know about this coming plan of God, it's not as though he's using an army that is just expert at casting aside small kings and petty kingdoms. They laugh at the greatest of empires. They scoff at the greatest of rulers. Kids, if you went to a beach and picked up a, a handful of sand, it's quite simple, isn't it? 
And what the Lord is saying is that's how the Babylonians treat their opposing forces. It's just like picking up a handful of sand. So easy, is it? They come to these citadels and fortresses and even the language at the end of verse 10 of piling up earth. They would pile up earth along the city walls and lay siege to it. And soon they would just kind of run over it and crush the city. It was again like they're just playing. They're playing at this military war along the beach. Nothing can stand against them. So easy is it for them to crush any opponent that is in their way, which is what leads to verse 11. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So you get an echo of what we're going to see in a couple weeks at the end of chapter 2. God doesn't think highly of the Babylonians, does he? He's already said they're guilty. Might is their right. Power is their God. Strength is their Savior. They're not trusting in any way in Yahweh. They're not bowing before He who alone is the sovereign King of the world. Rather, as long as they have all strength and power and authority, they're doing just fine, and that's what they decide to worship. So then, this is the problem that's facing Habakkuk that we'll get to deal with next week, Lord willing. Wait, you're going to use a pagan, godless army to destroy your covenant people? And God says, yes. That's exactly what I'm getting ready to do. And in a certain way, we want to say, you should not have been surprised. I said I was going to do it, but you did not listen to my warnings. You did not listen to my promises. So how then might that be applicable to us today, even this, this warning of covenant life, covenant community? Because of course we don't live in the Old Testament age of this theocratic kingdom. We do live in the new covenant age of a church. And so often it's true, don't you look around the church at the world and maybe want to cry out? Where is the justice for the martyrs? Where is the strength for the saints? Why is it that a lack of holiness seems to mark the church. Where is the purity of the church? Why is it that we're better at backbiting each other and backstabbing each other than we are edifying each other and building one another up? You said you were going to build your church, but where is it going in our country? Where is the witness, the progressive liberalization of our doctrine and truth? What are you going to do with your people? And he does surprising things, doesn't he? Even just this week, I found out that the evangelical church is growing fastest in the world in the country named Iran. God does surprising things with His people. It's why you can get all the way to the book of Revelation. You get these letters to the churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. If you do not remain faithful to me, I will take away your light. Christ Jesus says to His people. So we take these words and we put them in our time with our concerns as God's people. Because God reigns sovereign over all nations, even today doing surprising things, shocking things even, to promote the good of His people and the glory of His name. There's a man named David Brainerd who was a missionary to various Native American tribes in the 1740s, these tribes in New England. He died at the age of 29 of tuberculosis. After his death, uh, someone got, hands, uh, got their hands on his diary, and it was subsequently edited and published, and for almost 300 years it has not gone out of print. Its editor and publisher was a man named Jonathan Edwards, who said, Brainerd's life is worthy of all imitation. Eventually, John Wesley discovered this diary, and he said every pastor should read it. William Carey discovered the diary, began the modern missionary movement, 
Henry Martin discovered the diary and took the gospel to the Middle East. David Livingston discovered the diary and took the gospel to Africa. Robert Murray McShane and Andrew Murray discovered the diary and pursued holiness and love for Jesus Christ. Even one in our country so famous as a missionary named Jim Elliott discovered this diary that under God was used to send him to the nations, to a tribe that would eventually kill him for his desire to reach them with the gospel. And if you ever read the diary, it's little more than just the story, the account of one saint's struggles, one saint's sufferings as he wants to serve Jesus Christ. And in a genuine sense, some of you may be coming to Habakkuk this morning for the first time discovering a diary of a prophet's struggles and sufferings. Because what we're going to see in this book, this is not a book full of public proclamations of God's word. It's just a private discussion, a prayer journal between one man and the Lord, moving him from a place of lament to a place of full trust in what God plans to do for his name and for his people. But you're going to have to stick around with us a few weeks to see Habakkuk get all the way there because he's really in the depths of his despair next week. For this news that God is raising up the Babylonians sends Habakkuk into something of a spiritual crisis is what we're going to see next week. But God reigns sovereign over all nations, so what should that mean for us in light of our first 11 verses? To respond appropriate to this news that God is in control of all human history to bring about His sovereign purposes. Well, let me just say two things as we begin to close. God's sovereignty, number one, calls us to pray. God's sovereignty, number one, calls us to pray. So even this week, I've had people ask me, what do you think about Habakkuk's prayers? Is he just a whiny old prophet? Is he just a saint who can't complain? I mean, he uses the word even complaint in chapter 2, verse 1. Well, what you need to understand more truly to the text is that what Habakkuk is doing is completely normal in Old Testament spirituality. That's what we call lament, a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It's something that you can even find on the lips of Yahweh as far back as Exodus chapter 16. When he sees the sin of his people, they're complaining and grumbling in the wilderness. How long will I bear with this people? He says to Moses. It's a prayer that means to bring people from heartbreak to hope. From pain to praise. From loss to love. From grief to good. Some of you know what that prayer looks like. Some of you know what it means to come to God asking genuine, heartfelt, sincere questions. Where are you? What are you doing? Why could you let this happen? But by the end, what you see is even the conversation itself has brought you to a place of increased faith and trust. He knows what he's doing. He's up to something so wonderful that you wouldn't even imagine what it would be if you were told even this day. So we pray because God is sovereign. For why would we pray if he wasn't? If he didn't have all wisdom, what are we asking him for? If he didn't have all strength, what's he going to do? If he didn't have all power, could he even answer the request? So we maybe even want to consider by way of a particular conviction this morning. In our church, in our denomination, one of our more peculiar foundations theologically is our trust and full-throated conviction in God's sovereignty. Do you ever wonder if our prayer life confirms our confession? Or does it tend to reject it? I've thought about that a lot this week. My own prayer life, if you were a fly on the wall in my prayer closet, 
would be a prayer closet that shouts, He knows the Lord is sovereign. Is this a church that says, due to devotion to prayer, they truly believe that God is sovereign. They can take their struggles to Him because He'll do something about it for their good. They can wrestle with Him for understanding because He delights to bring them truth. God is sovereign, and so we pray. He calls us to prayer because God is sovereign. Secondly, we're pointed to Christ. God's sovereignty points us to Christ. And you may want to ask, where's, where's Jesus Christ in this passage? Because it is pointing us to Jesus. You can turn to Acts chapter 13. The apostles thought quite highly of Habakkuk. There's this story in Acts chapter 13. The apostle Paul comes to Antioch in Pisidia. And he, as he's wont to do, shows up at a synagogue on a Sabbath day and begins to preach, to exhort, to encourage the brethren there to lay hold of Jesus Christ in whom forgiveness is offered, who is the true son of David. And as he's working his way through all the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of his expectation of redemption, he gets to verse 40 and 41 of Acts 13 and says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. God had said to Habakkuk and to Judah through Habakkuk, I'm doing a work in your days, be astounded and trust in me. But they didn't. And so they were overthrown. I'm raising up Babylon. So many years later, Paul comes along and the apostles say, God has raised up another. And his name is Jesus Christ, crucified and buried, resurrected on the third day. Look and be astounded. Who would believe this? I raised him up. Trust and believe in him, lest you too perish as they did of old. For God continues, doesn't he, to work through pagan empires and evil nations. It was through Babylon that he brought about his covenant threats upon Judah. It was through Rome that his son was slain on a cross called Calvary. It was through the evil of the Jewish leaders that brought about God's purposes in Judah. It was through the evil of the Jewish leaders that God brought about the true son of David, the true king of kings, to die in the place of sinners like you and me. He has raised up another. Be astonished. Be amazed. Look and see. Look and live. God's sovereignty points us to Jesus Christ. He's bringing all things together. If you want to look at the climax of God's sovereign purposes in all history, you just run and race to that hill called Golgotha. For there you'll see God's purposes, while mysterious to us, are always for the good of his people. For as the book of Romans says, if he has not spared even his son, will he graciously withhold anything from us, this God who is sovereign over all things? Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that you are a God who indeed controls human history. That in the midst of all your surprises, in the midst of the ways you tend to confuse us, Father, we come back to the truth that you indeed intend to bring good to your people. Lord, as we walk through these pages in coming weeks, we pray that you would sustain us, that we might be able to know what it means to submit in humility to your mysterious providence in our lives. That we might even be strengthened this day to cry out in our lament to you that we might find our hurt turning to faith 
our pain turning to trust. For we know that in Jesus Christ you work all things for the good of those that you have called according to your name. So we pray that you would good, do good to us as we want to grow in prayer, as we want to grow in our love for Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.